Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Professor, blessing to have you back with us today. It's very good to be back. Thank you for having me and thank you for all of you for, for listening in. We're going to accept a challenge today. Um, we're going to, uh, over the next 50 minutes, handle what is probably one of the most difficult poems in the English language. And what I hope to show you is not actually that scary. When we actually get our hands dirty and get involved with it, it's, uh, it comes to life. Um, but the first thing I want to say is that, as I said last week, this particular poem, which I've taught many times, I normally devote uh, between three and four hours in the classroom uh, for it. To make so we can go through line by line all of the stanzas you've only got 50 minutes so what i'm going to do is spend about the first half of class going through part the first or the first part if you prefer and the second half of the uh of the lecture going through as much as we can get of uh part the second um so first of all let's start at the very beginning the wreck of the deutschland it's about a shipwreck the name of the ship is the deutschland and this shipwreck happened over the night of December the 6th and 7th, 1875, as it says at the top of your handout there. Again, please do try to refer to your handout because I'm going to be going through the poem and looking at specific lines. And so the actual dedication to the poem is to the happy memory of five Franciscan nuns, exiles by the folklores, drowned between midnight and morning of December the 7th. Okay, so basically, um, Hopkins, who had, as I mentioned last week, had burned all of his poems that he'd written prior to becoming, prior to training for the Jesuit priesthood as a sort of bonfire of the vanities, um, was actually um, invited by his Jesuit superior to write a poem about this particular event. So when Hopkins read the newspaper report, the newspaper report speaks, spoke about there being five Franciscan sisters amongst those who had perished. Um, one quarter of the people on the ship perished. It didn't sink. It was actually stranded on a sandbank in the mouth of the River Thames during a blizzard. And people either died from drowning because obviously it was taking on water or falling overboard or from, uh, or from exposure to the cold. So they, that was the cause of death. All five of the sisters perished. But there were reports in the newspapers of one of the sisters, a very tall sister, six feet tall, who was sort of, if you like, standing in the midst of the maelstrom, you know, calling people back to Christ like a John the Baptist figure. So it is this inspiration of this sister about to die, who's nonetheless preaching to 
her fellow passengers for repentance uh, and to return to Christ, which was the inspiration for the poem. So that sets the scene. And then the poem is divided in two parts. The first part is a meditation on the mystery of suffering. In fact, it's one of the deepest and most profound meditations on the mystery of suffering that I've ever read. So we're going to get a little taste of that in the first half of the lecture. And then the second half, the second part of the poem, is the actual narrative of the event of the shipwreck. Okay, so the first is medit first part is meditation or contemplation. The second part, is, if you like, is action. It's narrative. Okay, so I'm going to read parts of this as we go. I'm going to read the first stanza. Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world strand, sway of the sea, Lord of living and dead. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade what with dread thy doing. And dost thou touch me afresh? Over again, I feel thy finger and find thee. Now, in my version of the poem I'm reading from here, Hopkins occasionally tells us which syllables to stress. You remember from last week, those three concepts, uh, sprung rhythm, uh, where it's not about the number of syllables, but the number of stresses per line, number of stress syllables, uh, and inscape and in stress. Well, we're going to be talking about all of those. But... Hopkins sometimes gives us, he puts an accent above certain syllables so we know which ones to stress. In your copy, you don't have that, so I apologize. He doesn't do it all the time by any means, but it does at least help on those occasions when he does. So let's go back. It begins, thou mastering me, God. Okay, so God is the master. Right from the very beginning, he masters us. We're not the boss, he is. He's the giver of breath and bread, of all that we need to sustain us, without which we are dead anyway. Okay, so very, very right at the beginning. And then, well, strand, sway of the sea. Now, one means by which Hopkins deepens the meaning of the poem and takes us into layers upon layers of deeper meaning is through the use of double entendre. In other words, one word that has two meanings, both of which are applicable. So on this line, the third line, sway, the word sway of the sea. Now, if we were in a class situation, I'd be asking for hands up here as to what are the two meanings of sway that Hopkins has in mind here. But as that's not really practical in the present circumstances, I'm just going to have to tell you, but you can maybe be racing me. That can be the competition is you've got to get the answer before I give it, okay? So here, that obviously, the two, two is the word sway, uh, sway of the sea. On the one hand, it's the motion, all right? The sea sways, the waves sway, so it's the motion of the sea, but it's also the control of the sea. If, somebody, if you hold something in your sway, or if you're holding someone else's sway, they control you or you control them. So, Wellstrand, sway of the sea. So, God is the movement of the sea. He's the one that gives it the movement but he's also the one that controls it. Now, right at the beginning, by the way, we, we end with a, with a finger here, feel thy finger and find thee. But the main, Hopkins is pointing the finger at God and saying, basically, you were in control of this situation, right? If you wanted to stop this shipwreck, you could have done, but you didn't, right? So what's all that about? In other words, we're being invited into a, 
uh, a deep meditation onto the, the, the mystery of suffering. And then we have two lines further down, uh, some intertextuality. And again, to understand uh, many poet, poems and, and indeed novels and works of literature, we need to understand intertextuality. Um, uh, T.S. Eliot, for instance, uses it a huge amount in The Wasteland. Intertextuality is where you refer in your text to another text. And again, a bit like a double entendre, if you know the other text, then uh, the whole meaning of that text enters your poem and adds another layer of meaning to it. So here, thou hast bound me bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh. Again, I might ask you where it's from if you know your scripture. This is from the book of Job, chapter 10 of the book of Job. So again, the fact that he is quoting that book from the Old Testament, which, if you like, is the quintessential um, uh, uh, meditation on, on, on the mystery and meaning of suffering. He's basically saying you're going to get the same thing here, right? That people are going to suffer for reasons that we don't really explain. They seem to be innocent, blameless victims. What's all this about? Now, the final line of the stanza, over again, I feel thy finger and find thee. Now, think about that, all right? Maybe now, imagine ourselves as little babies. You don't remember being a little baby in a, in a um, perambulator or whatever you call them over here. Um, but, you know, at some point, you know, your, your parent puts the finger in to the perambulator and you as a little baby, you, you touch, you gra grasp the finger, okay? Well, over again, I feel thy finger and find thee. Who's finding who? All right. If we're, fi if we're finding Christ's finger, God's finger, it's because God is putting the finger there so that we can find it. His presence is in the midst of this. So second stanza. I did say yes. Oh, at lightning and lashed rod. Thou heardst me truer than tongue, confess thy terror, O Christ, O God. Thou knowest the walls, altar and hour and night, the swoon of a heart that the sweep and the hurl of thee trod, hard down with a horror of height, and the midriff of strain and leaning of, laced with fire of stress. We see the word stress there, we might be thinking of in stress. I hope, I was talking about last night, that I said yes. The poet, this is the poet speaking, right? First person, Hopkins. I did say yes to lightning and lashed rod. I did say yes to a life of sacrifice, to a life of suffering. The problem is that you heard me. <laughs> Thou heardst me truer than tongue confess thy terror. All right? You gave me what I asked for and it hurts. And then we get this, the next few lines is sort of the imagery is almost like a mystical roller coaster. We're being thrown up and thrown down. Sword of a heart that the sweep and the hurl of the trod hard down with a horror of height. And again, roller coaster, but of course, shipwreck, okay? A ship on the ocean in a storm. It's already all the imagery which is prefiguring the subject of the poem. Okay, and the fire of stress, in the midst of this fire, in the midst of this suffering, 
is this realization, this moment of epiphany, the in stress where we recognize the inscape of something, God's presence in a thing. And we need to remember here, by the way, I was talking about oak trees and, and, and what have you, but a thing is not just a static thing that stays there that you can look at. A thing is also an event. Okay, so our lives are a thing. A shipwreck is a thing. An episode in time is a thing. Okay, so the, this is about God, the inscape of this seascape, if you like, of this shipwreck. Okay, I'm going to so I have to decide what. Uh, yeah, well, we just carry on until we, until after 25 minutes, I'll, I'll go on to part two because uh, it's been too long looking for what I want to read. There's too much. So stanza three, the frown of his face before me, the hurtle of hell behind, where, where was a, where was a place, a world out wings that spell and fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host, my heart, but you were dove winged, I can tell, carrier witted, I am bold to boast to flash from the flame to the flame, then tower from the grace to the grace. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place because in front of him is the frown of God's face, right? The judgment of God. He's a sinner. So in front of him is the frown of God's face, but behind him is the hurdle of hell. What's he going to do? Is he going to accept the judgment of God? Or is he going to run away from the judgment of God into the other place, which is the only other place you can go if you try to escape from the judgment of God? So how does he respond to that? So he's basically got a choice between purgatory and hell, right? Between suffering, the, the cross, or hell. That's the only choice. There's no easy path to heaven here. So what do you do? He fled with a fling of the heart to the heart of the host. He flings himself into the arms of Christ. Suffering and all, whatever it means, purgatory, cross, crucifixion. Throws himself, you like, at God's judgment, but also, and of course, God's mercy. And in my heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, carrier-witted, I am bold to boast. So his heart in flinging, flinging itself into the arms of, of Christ with all the suffering that's going to come with that because it's inescapable is dove winged. Now that is, of course, a fairly obvious image, but it was grace, all right? He was carried there on the wings of a dove, you know, by the grace of, it was the grace of God that enabled him to fling his heart in that direction. But perhaps not quite so obvious is carrier witted. Here, of course, we're talking about a carrier pigeon. So a connection with dove, a carrier pigeon. You can take it as far away as you like. You let it go. It goes like an arrow as a crow flies or as a carrier pigeon flies directly back home. All right. So he's carrier witted, dove winged. He went home because God is home, even if God's not always comfortable and in stanza four i am soft sif in an hourglass one of my favorite lines from hopkins i am soft sif in an hourglass 
at the wolf fast, but mind with emotion adrift, and it crowds and it combs to the fall. I steady as a water in a well to a poise to a pain, but roped with always all the way down from the tall fell or flanks of the foil, a vein of the gospel proffer, a pressure, a principle, Christ's gift. So I am soft sift in an hourglass. I was playing charades with my daughter and my wife yesterday. And you have one of these little hour, hourglass timer. It wasn't an hourglass, it was a minute glass. You just turn it over and there's one minute's worth of sand that's passing through. You have one minute to guess the charades or you, or you lose, right? So again, but here it's our life. Each of us is soft sift. And by the way, both of those, both of those, uh, words are accentuated by Hopkins. He wants us to stress them. I am soft sift in an hourglass. Each of us is soft sift in an hourglass. We have a certain amount of time, certain amount of the sand, the sands of time in our own individual hourglass. And we don't know how much it is, how much longer we have. Each of us has only that one hourglass. And when the sand runs out, we have no more time this side of the grave. Another double entendre here. Um, at the wall, fast, but mind with emotion adrift. At two double entendres in that one line. Fast here. Two meanings. Fast as in quick. So again, all this, everything's happening quickly. The sort of pace of this in some ways is a bit like a shipwreck, a storm at sea. It's fast. But also we're trapped by it, as in fastened. We're held fast. So in fact, they're almost contradictions, right? You move fast because you're free to move, but you're not moving at all because you're held fast. Both, all right? Because both of those means are there, that we're in a, we're in a maelstrom. Our lives are a maelstrom. We're soft sift and our glass. We have to suffer uh, our own shipwrecks, our own suffering. Everything's moving quickly, but we're also trapped. Stanza five. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight wafting him out of it, and glow glory in thunder. Kiss my hand to the dappled with damson west. Since though he is under the world's splendor and wonder, his mystery must be in stressed, stressed, for I greet him the days I meet him and bless when I understand. I kiss my hand to the stars. Why? Because God's in them. They, the starlight is wafting him out of it. He is the, the light of God is in the light of the stars. We're meant to see him there. We're meant to see the inscape of the starlight. Because he's being wafted out of it. And the glow, glory and thunder. When we see lightning and thunder, we should see God in the glory of the thunder, in the glow of the lightning. We should kiss our hand to the dappled with damson west. We should kiss our hand in gratitude to every single sunset that we see. It's a new art gallery every single day of our lives, the sunrise and the sunset and the changing color of the sky. Most of the time, we don't even bother to look up to see it. And this for Hopkins is a crime. Since though he is under the world's splendor, that which stands under, 
philosophically is substance, understand, okay? So again, the underneath all the physical surface is the metaphysical reality, which at heart is God's presence and God's goodness, truth and beauty in his creatures. Which is why those moments when we have that moment of instress, his mystery must be instressed, stressed. That when we actually experience and see God's presence in the beauty of the cosmos, we are meant to be in praise for God's presence with us. For I greet him the days I meet him and bless when I understand. Again, understand substance when I see the substance underlying the physical surface. Let me get some very, very heavy theology here. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt. This is stanza six. Not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven. And few know this. This beauty doesn't actually come primarily from heaven. Swings the stroke dealt, stroke at a stress that stars and storms deliver. That guilt is hushed by hearts are flushed by and melt, but it rides time like riding a river. And here the faithful waver, the faithless fable and miss. Basically, it's not first from heaven. It's not in God's bliss. It's in his suffering that we're flushed by our hearts are, are broken. They're flushed. They melt guilt hushed by, storms deliver, stress itself. And this is difficult. That where we actually experience God first and foremost is not in his heavenly kiss, but if you like, in the kiss of the cross, in the touch of the cross. So it dates not, from, not out of his bliss, not first from heaven, stands to seven, it dates from the day of his going in Galilee. That our ability to experience God's presence is connected to his incarnation, to God entering the cosmos himself. It dates from the day of his going in Galilee. Warm laid gray of a womb life gray. What a wonderful line. Connecting the, the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary with the tomb. Because in some sense, of course, God is dying to himself in order to take on human form. That Mary's womb is in some sense a tomb. When God gives himself to us, dies for us in becoming man long before he dies on the cross. The dense and the driven passion and frightful sweat, thence the discharge of it, there it's swelling to be. Though felt before, though in a high flood yet, what no one would have known of it, only the heart being hard at bay is out with it. Now, we talk about the passion there and the, the sweat, but the imagery here is not so much of the crucifixion as of childbirth, as of the labors of childbirth. And I know that there can be some um, controversy about whether the Blessed Virgins, because of her immaculate conception, would not have suffered the pains of childbirth. I don't want to get involved in that particular discussion, partly because I'm a coward. Um, but what I would say here is, is that um, Hopkins is clearly implying that 
Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin, joins in God's own sacrifice. And let's not forget, Our Lady does suffer. There's no doubt about that. No one argues about her seven, her seven dolors, uh, her seven sorrows. She, she witnesses her, her son being crucified. So it's not that she, that she can't suffer. Did she suffer the pangs of the childbirth? I don't know. But certainly Hopkins is saying here that there was, there was the passion of Christ in the incarnation was joined by the mother of Christ in his birth. All right, I could go on. I think that I'm going to move on to part two here. Well, I'm going to, let's do, let's do stanza 10, the final stanza of part one. I'm obviously leaving, leaving loads of wonderful things out and going faster than I would like, but hey, it is what it is. With an anvil ding, again, anvil ding, think about that, right? It, what, part of the image is of a bell, all right? We're being called to something, right? Called to some deeper understanding of God's presence through the ringing of a bell. But it's not any sort of bell, right? It's an anvil ding. Well, what dings an anvil? It's a hammer, okay? So basically, this is a violent image. You can almost see that those, those sisters and those people in the shipwreck and weird suffering souls in this veil of tears are the horseshoe or the piece of metal that's being hammered between the hammer and the anvil. With an anvil ding and with fire in him, forge thy will. And here God as the blacksmith. Forge thy will, or rather, rather than stealing a spring through him, melt him, but master him still. Or maybe not that violently. <laughs> so I'm saying, you know, image of the blacksmith smashing us to pieces, but you don't have to do it that way. You know, you can also sort of still soften us like a spring day, warm us gradually. But master him still, but whatever it takes, right? And then we've got these two examples. Whether at once, at, as once at a crash pool, or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill. Make mercy in all of us, out of us all mastery, but be adored, but be adored king. Okay, so however you bring us to you doesn't matter. In a sudden moment of violence, at once, as once at a crash pool, by knocking us off our horse and bringing us to our senses, the shipwreck, or as Austin, Austin is the English uh, abbreviation of Augustine. So the Austin Friars, the August, Augustinian Friars. So St. Augustine of Hippo, a lingering out sweet skill. Or you just take forever, basically slowly teaching us until we come to our senses. Not that that path is without suffering either, but, but whatever, make mercy in all of us. However, whatever it takes, make mercy in us. In other words, make us human. Make us receptive. Out of us all mastery. But be adored, but be adored king. Whatever it takes, whatever suffering it takes, fast, slow, be adored. Bring all of us to you. So he sets the scene there for the second part of the poem, which is the shipwreck, part the second. Okay. Um, I wrote a play, just a quick aside, I wrote a play that was, uh, um, had a short one off Broadway in New, in New York uh, about two years ago called Death Comes for the War Poets. And uh, one of the characters was Death, who was a woman. 
and I actually got her speaking these the li these lines uh, at the beginning of part of the second stanza eleven. Because <clears throat> this, this is this is death speaking. So the second part starts with death speaking. Think of that starters setting the scene. Some find me a sword. Some the flange and the rail. Flame, fang, or flood goes death on drum and storms bugle his fame. But we dream we are rooted in earth, dust. Flesh falls within sight of us. We, though our flower the same, wave with the meadow, forget that there must the sour scythe cringe and the blear share come. Okay, so death speaks, saying, People find me in very different forms. Sword, flange and rail. In other words, being killed in the railway accident. Flame, fang, flood. And then death on drum, storms bugle his fame. War. But in spite of that, we dream we are rooted in earth dust. We, we, we dream somehow we've, we've got some sort of permanence. We don't heed the memento mori the reminder of death flesh falls inside us we see things dying every autumn we see lots of things dying we see people dying and we though our flower the same we're the same our flowers the same as theirs we wave in the meadow as they did and we forget that we're going to be cut down so the whole of the second part begins with a memento mori then 12, which I won't read, basically sets the scene of the narrative. They sail, they, they sail from Bremen as a port in the northern part of Germany, bound for America. These five sisters, I think they were bound from Missouri to establish uh, a religious community there. They were thrown out of Germany by uh, Bismarck in the Kulturkampf, a secularist regime in Germany and Prussia at the time, uh, persecuting the church. They were leaving Germany as exiles and going to the United States. Uh, that was the plan and uh, men women and children 200 around 200 and none of them knew they weren't going to get there their goal was a shoal yet did the dark side of the bay of thy blessing not walk them the million of rounds of thy mercy not reeve even them in so they're all going to die Whatever their plans are to go to America, all these new dreams in a new world, none of it's going to happen. They're going to die within a day. Where are you, Lord, in this? This dark side of the bay of thy blessing. All right, so just more uh, description of the storm. I love the fact, stanza 13, sea flint flake. So again, the, the, yeah, if you've ever been in a blizzard, right? You don't think about snow as being like flint, right? That can actually cut. But if you've been in a blizzard with that hard hell type stone, you can see flint flake. And this is not just the blizzard, but also the actual sea itself, the foam. Wiry and white, fiery and whirlwind swiveled snow. Spins to the widow-making, unchilding, unfathering deeps. So this wiry and white fiery and whirlwind swiveled snow is going to make people widows. It's going to make people orphans. It's going to make people childless. 
There's just more about the steps 14, how they get shipped back just off the, uh, off the coast of England. Okay, so go to set 18. Obviously, I'm happy to be selective here. They fought with God's cold. So, okay, who's taking the blame for this? Well, whose cold is it? Is it the devil's cold? No, it's God's cold. The inscape of this storm, when we look at the inscape, the actual uh, spiritual presence in this storm, it's God we find. They fought with God's cold and they could not and fell to the deck, crushed them, or water and drowned them, or rolled at the sea romp over the wreck. Night roared with the heartbreak hearing at heartbroke rabble. And then this really should, should get to us. The, the woman's wailing, the crying of child without check. We have a nightmare scenario here. Till a lioness arose breasting the babble, a prophetess towered in the tumult, a virginal tongue told. Now here, virginal tongue told, double entendre upon double entendre. All right, she's a religious sister, so she's a virgin. But a virginal, as you may know, is an early type of piano, okay? So um, she's presenting, if you like, the music of God in the midst of the storm. Virginal tongue told, the word told here, told as in telling. She's speaking, but told as in T-O-L-L-E-D, right? It's the, she's tolling to them. If you like, it's the, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. This is the memento mori. She is there to say, okay, whatever other vanities you have, now is the time to get your house in order. And then let's do, let's do 18. Don't know what to leave out, really. Ah, touched in your bower of bone, are you? Turn for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words break for me here all alone, do you? Mother of being in me heart. This is the poet speaking to himself. In other words, he is experiencing this as a poet. And this is what's getting him to do what he's doing here. Speak of his own heart. Oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Why tears, is it? Tears. Such a melting and madrigal start. Again, another wonderful um, double entendre. A melting. So first of all, his heart, his hardened heart. Oscar Wilde, one of my favorite sayings of Oscar Wilde is, how else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in. That his hardened heart, his ice cold heart is melted by his tears. Or the tears, if you like, are a sign, an outward sign of the melting of his ice cold hardened heart. It's a madrigal, a madrigal start. And again, madrigal, music, like a dance, but start, double entendre. 
start is a beginning, all right? So this, the experience of this new story is bringing out this deep meditation on God's presence in the midst of suffering. So it's a start in, as in a beginning, as in the source of inspiration. But it's also a start as in startle, as being surprised. So he's, it's a, the instress, it's the moment of seeing, the eureka moment, the epiphany of God's presence in this tragedy. And then 19, sister, a sister calling a master, her master and mine. The, the rash, smart, sloggering brine blinds her. But she that weather sees one thing one has one fetch in her. She rears herself to divine ears and the call of the tall nun to the men in the tops and the tackle rode over the storms brawling. She's there to call them all back to God. Then 20. She was first of a five and came of a coiffed sisterhood. Oh, Deutschland, double a desperate name. So double a desperate name. The ship is obviously desperate. It's going it's to be wrecked, but the country is desperate and is going to be wrecked as well. The country is itself a shipwreck. Double a desperate name. Oh, worldwide of its good. We've gone, we've gone well wrong here. Not where we should be. But then, but Gertrude, Lily and Luther are two of a town. Christ, Lily and beast of the Wastewood. In other words, and, and both, they both come from the same town in Germany, Eisleben. So from this small town in Germany, you have St. Gertrude, the Lily of God. And then you have Luther, the beast of the Wastewood. So again, I, I, that's the world as a whole. It's Germany as a whole and it's this ship as a whole. We have all sorts here. From life's dawn, it is drawn down. Abel is Cain's brother, and breast they have sucked the same. So the universal applicability here in the midst of this specific event. Well, let's skip one just to say, let's go on to 22 here. Five. The finding and sake and cipher of suffering Christ. Mark, the mark is of man's make and the word of its sacrifice. But he scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken. Before time taken, dearest prize it and priced, stigma, signal, sink foil, token. The lettering of the lamb's fleece, ruddying of the rose flake. So... Five. There are five sisters. Hopkins sees a symbolism in this with the five wounds of Christ. Cipher and suffering, uh, sake and cipher of suffering Christ. The five nuns and the five wounds are juxtaposed. They're brought together. Mark, and again, double entendre, Mark. The mark is of man's mate. Mark as in take heed, listen. Mark my words, heed. The markers of man's make and the word of its sacrificed. That the wounds of Christ are made by man. 
that the suffering of Christ and the suffering of these sisters is a consequence of man's sin. God is sacrificed for our sin, the word of its sacrifice. But he shares the blessing of the cross, not just in a detached sense of us seeing him hanging there in gratitude, but in allowing us to be nailed there with him. So there's a religious order called the Missionaries of the Poor, and their um, motto is joyful suffering with Christ on the cross. In other words, that somehow or other we have to become so at one with our love for Christ that we actually want to suffer joyfully with him. Easier said than done, of course. But he scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken. In other words, that suffering is something like he brands a sheep. He scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken. He causes his own people, those who are his own, to bleed. Before time taken, dearest price and price, stigma is all different words for signs. Stigma is in the stigmata, signal, sign, sink foil. So that's a, uh, a leaf with uh, five different uh, things coming out of it. So again, uh, and token. So basically, just this is four words there, all mean the same thing. Sign or symbol, stigma, signal, sink foil, token. For lettering of the lamb's fleece. So we are his lambs and he marks us with the brand that says we are his. The ruddying of the rose flake. Again, wonderful phrase there, ruddying to make something red, of course. Then 23, joyful to thee, Father Francis, drawn to the life that died. So now we go from the Franciscan sisters to St. Francis, who, of course, also had the stigmata. So this, symb this symbolism of five is continuing. With the gnolls of the nails in the niche of the lance, his lovescape crucified. Here we see the inscape of the crucifixion being love. When you get beneath the surface of the suffering, the actual God's presence in it is love. His lovescape crucified and seal of his seraph arrival and these thy daughters the five nuns and five livid and leavid favor and pride are sisterly sealed in wild waters to bathe in his full gold mercies it's like now the leaves during autumn turn to gold they look beautiful and then they die they fall to bathe in his full gold mercies, to breathe in his all fire glances. That their death is beautiful. And the next stanza, which I won't read just because we're running out of time, is the poet comes back to himself a long way from all this storm, and uh, he's there in a very quiet part of Wales. Um, but where is she? She. We was calling, oh Christ, Christ come quickly. The cross to her she calls, Christ to her, christens her wild worst best. She baptizes her worst moment. 
by calling Christ. And then we have, again, it just gets more and more ecstatic, the majesty. What did she mean? Breathe art and original breath. Is it love in her of the being as her lover had been? Breathe body of lovely death. They were else-minded then altogether. The men woke thee with a, we are perishing in the weather of Gennesareth. Or is it that she cried for the crown then, the keener to come, the comfort for feeling the combating keen? So again, another double entendre, keen as an eager, keen as in something which is sharp. The imagery, by the way, of the, of the, of the, of the, the sister's death is, a, is conjugal. This is her wedding night. And that's a stanza further back. We don't have time to read. This is a day of glory for her. This is where she's going to meet the bridegroom. So let's just read the last two uh, stanzas to finish. And then we want to have time for Q&A. So stanza 34. Now burn newborn to the world, double natured name. The heaven flung, heart fleshed, maiden furled, miracle in Mary of flame, mid numbered, he in three of the thunder throw. I challenge you to look anywhere you like and find a more gloriously beautiful description of Jesus Christ than those lines. Now burn newborn to the world, double natured name, the heaven flung, heart fleshed, maiden furled, miracle in Mary of flame, mid numbered he in three of the thunder throw. All sorts of deep theology about the Christology in there. And of course, a storm imagery for the Trinity, right? The thunder throne. Not a doomsday dazzle in his coming, nor dark as he came. Kind, but royally reclaiming his own. A released shower let flash to the shire, not a lightning of fire hard hurled. So the, the shipwreck is being said, basically held up here as a metaphor for all death. All of us, in some sense, are going to be on the wreck of the Deutschland, okay? We're all going to suffer this. We don't know in what sense. It's going to come to all of us. And here, again, this double entendre, kind. So, again, this is about Christ, kind, but royally reclaiming his own, okay? He's the king. Kind, of course, um, means friendly, uh, uh, Huggable, whatever you like, right? Kind, but also kind as in kindred, okay? So the reason we are kind is because that's the way we treat members of the family, because they are kin, because they are kindred, because he's one of us, he's our brother, he's also our king. He's reclaiming his own. And then the final stanza, appropriately, is a prayer to the new saint, to the six foot sister who's died calling people back to Christ. So the final stanza is a prayer to one of the saints. Dame at our door, this is an Englishman, okay? Dame at our door drowned and among our shoals. Remember us in the roads, the heaven haven of the reward. Our king back, oh, upon English souls. Let him Easter in us. Be a dayspring to the dimness of us. Be a crimson 
credited east. More brightening her rare dear Britain as his reign rolls, pride, rose, prince, hero of us, high priest, our hearts, charities, hearths, fire, our thoughts, chivalries, throngs, Lord. Also would challenge you to find a more beautifully worded prayer. But of course, the desire for a Catholic, from Catholic Englishman for the conversion of England and hoping that perhaps this German sister who died on England's doorstep, so to speak, might through her intercession bring England back. Be a crimson cresseted east. A crescent is a, a, a lantern. So be a crimson lantern east. Sunrise, being a sunrise. Let him Easter in us. Let him be re resurrected in our hearts. So actually ends, as it perhaps appropriately for a Christmas Christian poem. If most of the poem is, is about the passion, the crucifixion, it ends with a promise of resurrection. Thank you so much for this, Joseph. That's a uh, beautiful presentation. And, and it's, um, I don't think that there's anything else um, that shakes you up out of lukewarmness than being reminded that, yes, in the end, there will be no suffering. But to get to there, we've got to go through it. So thank you for that, Joseph. It's very beautiful. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. We will go ahead and begin Q&A now. Uh, I'll start with Evelyn's question. But Evelyn writes in here, in her old college notes, so you bring us back to the college days, it says that Hopkins said he would stop writing poems because he had nothing more to say. And she remembers in her textbook that there were some excerpts from his letters. Um, can you speak on this? Have you heard of anything about his stopping his craft uh, and what kind of caused that to uh, occur? Yeah, I don't think that he finally ever stopped uh, writing or planning to write poetry. What he did suffer from was um, what we might call depression. And certainly that, that po both poems and letters he wrote during those periods when, if you like, he's uh, overcast mentally, mm -hmm. would express those sorts of feelings. But they are usually transient feelings. So they don't, they're not the final word. Fair enough. There's uh, Patricia's writing in. She's saying she, she was just kind of overcome by the beauty of this poem. And she's wondering if um, where you would recommend her looking for more commentary on it. Well, well first, let me give you the opportunity to plug any books you've written there, Joseph. I know you've probably written about 30 books on this subject. So maybe you can mention the titles and we'll include links to that in the email. Well, actually, I, I'm going to write an article soon, an essay soon, probably for the Magic Conservative, which is going to be called Books I'd Like to Write. So they're, they're not books I have written, they're books I'd like to write. And one of them would be a book on the record of the Deutschland with a separate chapter for each of the 34 stanzas. Um, that would be my plan, sort of a thousand words on each stanza or so. So that would be about 34,000, you know, fairly slim book. I'd love to write it, don't know when or if I will, but uh, unfortunately, the, one of the reasons I want to write that book is I don't really think there's anything out there which does justice to this poem in terms of explicating it stanza by stanza. So um, you've either got to plow your way through uh, by learning it yourself or find a good 
professor of literature and there aren't that many of those so make sure that he is a good professor of literature and not someone who's going to drivel at you which most of them do um and then um uh, and then study it that way I, I, I wish i had better advice but I, I need to write that book i'd love to write that book because i i've taught this poem many times i've read it numerous times every time i read it i fall in love with it anew i, I would really like this it's an excuse for me to just do nothing but spend a month with Rebecca the Deutschland. that's my idea of heaven this side of heaven so you know, I like that idea. I'm going to steal that of uh, books I'd like to write. <laughs> kind of like, you know, you're almost there. I could come up with a pretty long list of that. I like that. Now, yeah. I know in the handout you included um, two other poems, and Edward was writing in here and is wondering, um, besides the poem tonight, uh, do you have other favorite poems? And uh, maybe you could just briefly um, kind of give us some direction and how to approach those other two that are in the handout. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, there were just two others. It was uh, God's Grandeur and as Kingfisher's, Kingfisher's Catch Fire, is that right? Yeah, you know what? I think I kind of wrong too. We also had Rosa Mystica. Rosa Mystica. Yeah. Well, Rosa Mystica I put on there because it's actually simpler. It's been set to music and it's a hymn. It has a refrain. There's lots of good uh, Mariology in there. There's, uh, um, so there's lots of good deep theology, but really it's a fairly simple. It's not like these deeper poems. But the reason I talked about... I, I, that um, God's grandeur and as kingfishers catch fire is they illuminate in some way what I was saying last week about inscape and in stress. Uh, and that was the main reason that, the, that they're actually sort of even sort of inklings of a definition of inscape. So that's, so really if you, if you were at last week's lecture, if you'd like to, to, to you know, watch it or listen to it on the link, um, that hopefully will contextualize those two poems for you. But, but there are many other poems by Hopkins that I love. The Wind Hover is another marvelous poem of his. Um, so I don't really know where to start or finish. Maybe I need to write a second book on the other poems of you know, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, we're going to end with uh, Gretchen's question here. Gretchen writes, um, what, what do you think of the Hansen book, Exiles, uh, which is about Father Hopkins uh, and this poem. Now, I'm actually very pleased you uh, you mentioned that. I mean, that's a in in some ways is an interesting way of getting a another perspective on it. So, what one Hansen does in that sort of short novella, Exiles, he actually turns this dramatic action from this poem into a sort of novel about the sisters. If I had to be honest with you, I was very disappointed with it. Um, I, I thought it was very prosaic. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a hard act to follow, the record of the Deutschland anyway, but there's not a real sense, that I didn't get the real sense of inscape and beauty uh, and the, myst the really mystical um, meditation on, on suffering. I thought it was relatively shallow and relatively prosaic. Um, hate to say that. I wouldn't, I'm glad I read it. I'm not necessarily going to be in a hurry to read it again. Oh, I appreciate not being around the bush on that. There you go. You got a straight <laughs> review. <laughs> And Joseph, thank you so much for uh, tonight. It's, it's always a pleasure having you back and uh, we look forward to the next time. Well, thank you. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's always a blessing to be with you folks. You're doing great work. Thank you. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. 
St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.